invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. As you open your Bibles to Exodus, we are keeping two ideas close at hand. The first is that history is his story. So we look to the author of all scripture to teach us what he intended to show forth. We don't ignore the human author's setting and the original audience's circumstances, but we have warrant from scripture to see that to see these as the launching points for learning how our redeemer is progressively revealed and redemption shown forth in the Old Testament scripture. The second thing we keep close at hand as we study Exodus is the gracious commitment of the Lord to Abraham to provide a numerous people to fill a good land. And this was a means unto a greater heavenly end where Abraham's true descendants will populate a new heavens and new earth through his promised offspring. And so as we continue on in the prologue to Israel's redemption out of the house of slavery in Egypt toward Sinai, toward the place where God will call them to worship him, where he will covenant with them to be their God and them to be his people, we see the setup taking place here in the first few chapters of Exodus. And there's a turn that takes place here in especially chapter 2, where the turn, though Moses doesn't uh, fall into the background by any uh, stretch of the imagination, the chapter ends with a focus not on Moses and his actions, but on God and his actions. So we see here that there is a, an end to the prologue as now Moses enters or leaves Egypt, enters into Midian, as God prepares him uh, for service to his purposes. Follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 and uh, reading through verse 25. The word of the Lord says, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, their father, he said, why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for, for us and watered the flock. 
He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help one more time. O Lord, we come before you this morning desiring to hear from you out of your word. We ask that you would attend this ministry of your word by your spirit, that these things may be so. Thank you for the hope of such things that you will accomplish according to your good and awesome promises and purposes. May this be a blessing to us as it comes to us out of your word by your spirit, that we may not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We thank you and we give you praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the 80s and 90s may not have invented the quick meal. It seems that that has come, that came out of uh, very early on, but mainly out of World War II and the like. But it surely seems like they perfected them, or maybe as an 80s and 90s kid, kid, it just seemed so to me. Though instant oatmeal packets were invented in the 60s, it was the 90s that brought such flavors as radical raspberry, strawberries and stuff, and cinnamon graham cookie. 1972, Top Ramen instant noodles debuted in America, but it didn't take off until the 80s. I myself grew up with bagel bites and Lunchables, and though instant Meal has become a four-letter word amongst modern parents. The idea of the, of the instant lives on through technology. If you would have told me that you could take a picture and not wait for it to develop by taking it to the store, I would have been amazed as a child. If you would have told me that you didn't have to have a collection of CDs in your car or up in your visor, to listen to your favorite music or wait for it to be released and then go to the store to pick it up, but you could just have it in the palm of your hand, not just your music, but all music. I would have been amazed. And we all know well what happened when you missed your favorite episode of your favorite TV show growing up. You just missed it. And you would hope that the recap from the on the next week would catch you up or that you'd catch it in summer reruns. But we have instant pictures and instant music, instant movies and instant TV shows in our life. And as Alec, as, as Alec uh, Mottier observes, we always naturally want simple, quick solutions, the equivalent of instant coffee in spiritual reality. 
Occasionally, the Lord will satisfy that desire. But for the most part, he does not. And like the Exodus people, we face the demand for preserving, persevering in faithfulness and patience awaiting the coming day. That we are surrounded with instant privileges and instant things, we find in our spiritual walk that it is not so. God calls us to persevere in faithfulness and patience awaiting the coming day. Last week, we looked at, we saw that all along the history of redemption, God is displaying that he is the one who brings life from death, the one who defeats the darkness and can be trusted by faith. Well, this morning we come to find that Christ is never absent from his revelation, and so faith and repentance is also nearby with an emphasis on growing in grace. So we'll come to this theme under three headings, finding Christ, finding faith and repentance, and finding growth in grace. So that's finding Christ, finding faith and repentance, and finding growth in in grace. You may not see it immediately this morning, but the unfolding of scripture is the unfolding of the revelation of the salvation of God's people through the mediation of Christ the Lord. In our passage this morning, we have particular help from the divine author who brings a fuller sense to the text through later revelation. Our confession teaches us that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, we, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. And so this morning, if you'd like to put your bookmarks or finger or a piece of paper in Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews 11... We'll be addressing those passages as we see the Holy Spirit working through different human authors to bring a fuller sense to what we have happening, to, happening in Exodus chapter 2. Acts 7 will be addressed later, but let's first turn to Hebrews 11 to see the Christological scope of our passage this morning. As we read the narrative in, in total uh, this morning, we see that uh, what we have is the main actor is Moses and his uh, travails or is the happenings in his life. And we may wonder, is, is Christ present? Is the idea that, that the scope of Scripture is found in Christ our Lord present in Exodus 2? Well, if we see in Hebrews 11 and we begin in verses 24, we find it to be true. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater, the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So we see here that the author in Hebrews 11 draws our focus in Exodus 2 
to what was happening in Moses' heart and mind. What is available to us now through later revelation is implicit here in antecedent or prior revelation. And so 26 is of our focus currently that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. So here we have warrant to consider the reproaches of Christ that Moses preferred over the riches of Egypt. The assumption here is the implication is that what Christ, what uh, Moses does in verse 11 when it says when he had grown up he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labor but there was a consideration in Moses's mind as he took action as he went out he went out of Pharaoh's house he went to his brethren and Hebrews 11 lets us know that he does so for considering the reproaches of Christ over the riches of Egypt. What could Moses have considered as reproaches of Christ? Where in previous revelation was Moses seeing the reproaches of Christ? Well, if we follow and we go back just as a quick survey, we see that atonement through death that began in the garden or began there in Genesis 3, and it was assumed that it was done on a weekly basis, so there would be a weekly sacrifice foreshadowed the simultaneous crushing of the serpent's head and serpent striking the heel of the seed of the woman so that atonement from sin could not come apart from, the de from death, but out of death could come forgiveness, could come life. And so there was the picture in the weekly sacrifice of suffering, of the necessity of suffering for atonement. Reproaches of the seed of the woman is pictured in the original sacrifice of the garden. We see it further in the life of the patriarchs, the repudiation of Noah at the announcement of the flood. We know Noah was chided by uh, his uh, fellow citizens for his actions and seeking to obey the command of the Lord and pronounce the coming destruction of the world. And what was of Noah? Noah suffered on account of that. He suffered as he entered into the ark with his family in order to be delivered. What of the also of uh, more immediate context to uh, Moses or closer context to Moses was the sojourning of the patriarchs in Canaan. We know that scripture tells us that neither Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob possessed even a foot's breadth of the promised land. They may have gained uh, places to water their flock or to feed uh, their flock, and there was only maybe one grave that was accounted to them, but that in many ways was uh, given to them as a, as a sideways, not for them to dwell, but so that they may bury their dead. So the sojourning of the patriarchs show us also the reproach of Christ. That would be through their sojourning that they would come into the promised land, and yet we know, again, further revelation in Hebrews, that that comes by faith, 
not in the Canaan itself in its physical representation, but in its spiritual re representation as the age to come. And the very specific example of Joseph, who suffered for the deliverance of his family. Certainly Moses would have learned at some point how the people of Israel came to dwell in Egypt. And they came to dwell in Egypt out of Joseph's deliverance. And Joseph delivered the people of Israel, though he suffered first, sold into slavery, considered dead. Even Jacob says, my son, who I considered dead, is now alive to me. And it was by that the people of Israel were delivered from the famine. And now the suffering of the Israelites prior to their deliverance as part of this story. For Moses goes out and he sees his brethren under their hard labors. And even furthermore, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So Moses considers these reproaches as typological to the reproaches of the one who would come by way of the seed of the woman, by way of the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah that would deliver them into that eternal land. This is what is implied here in Exodus 2 when it says, when Moses had gone up, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. We know this because in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And then he promises to Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Here, Moses was tutored by the God of history to see from afar the reward in one who would suffer for the deliverance of a people. So Moses associates himself with that suffering, but not for suffering's sake, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Messiah. So as it is, when one finds Christ, he finds repentance and faith. Let's go back to Hebrews 11 as we find repentance and faith. We see, as I read earlier, about Moses' actions of repentance. How were they actions of repentance? Because it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He refuses to be considered the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It even says that he puts in this doing, he puts to death pleasures of sin. What is repentance if it isn't the turning from sin 
and turning to righteousness. What did he refuse? That, help, that comes to us from Acts chapter 7, and I'll just read it for us, and we'll go there later, but Acts 7, 22 and 23 says, Moses, this is a sermon, a sermon by Stephen, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. We see here that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. Moses was educated by the greatest uh, professors of the day. He entered into the school of Egypt. The known world didn't hold as many treasures as Egypt had compiled. And so Moses would have learned all the ways of the Egyptians. This is what he repented of. This is what he turned of. And what did he choose instead of, of these sinful pleasures? He chose the reproach of Christ. He chose to be endure ill treatment with the people of God. Moses finds Christ. And in finding Christ, he repents, turns from sin. We have such encouragement for us this morning in passages such as Philippians chapter 3. Paul accounts his own repentance. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. What is Paul? What happens in Paul's heart when he finds Christ? But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom are, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Amen. We see it again as not only from the hand of Paul, but from the hand of James. James writes in James chapter 4, he says, excuse me, beginning in verse 4, you, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt in you. This isn't saying that we are to walk around as Christians with a downcast countenance that we're to be pessimists or that we're to be just miserable creatures. It is that we are to consider all that which used to pleasure us in the flesh as now making us miserable to the point of weeping, willing to give up it all for the sake of Christ. Finally, the words of our Lord in Matthew 6 No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Oh, what was at Moses' fingertips when he dwelt in Pharaoh's palace, when he walked the halls as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm sure he had many servants to attend to his every whim, But also there was to him a growing stench as he encountered Christ. For these things that possibly at one point in time gave him pleasure or he took pleasure in now became a point of mourning and weeping. And he repented from such things. And it's not a vow of poverty he took. It was a vow that these things are all lost. They're all rubbish to him if he could have Christ. And it was amongst God's people that he found that he could have that. The basis, though, of Moses' repentance, Moses' foundation was of faith. Hebrews eleven twenty four tells us, by faith Moses acted by faith Moses acted this way and though justification and sanctification as we talk about repentance and faith are twin benefits of union with Christ in other words that the moment we are united to Christ we receive both justification and sanctification we recognize that uh, there is a logical order whereby faith precedes repentance Or if you are to turn from something, you turn to something. And you can't turn to something you don't have faith in. Sometimes, though, experientially, we sense action before faith. But logically, the order is faith precedes repentance. And so the foundation of Moses' turning from the riches of Egypt to the reproach of the Israelites to the reproach of Christ was of faith. He acted in faith because he had to leave what was uh, presented to him and probably in all the ways uh, a pleasure to the eyes and his senses and look by faith to see 
what was being offered to him, which was greater and far surpassed the riches of Egypt. Calvin, commenting on our Hebrews passage, says, Now did that faith, which the apostles celebrates, begin to show itself when Moses, despising the pleasures and riches of the court, chose rather to suffer the reproach of Christ than to be accounted happy apart from companionship with the chosen people. Nor was it only love for his nation, but faith in the promises which induced him to undertake this charge by which he knew that he should incur the hatred of all the Egyptians. For although he did not immediately resign his wealth and his honorable station and influence and power, this was, as it were, the preparation for divesting himself of all these deceitful allurements. Allurements. He saw that he could not be happy, or he chose not to be happy, apart from companionship with the chosen people of God. And eventually he would seek to divest himself of all these deceitful desires. Verse 26 of that Hebrews passage says he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Earlier, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And again, in chapter 13, verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We see such a thing in Moses' short, uh, in this short narration of Moses' life when he gives birth to his son and names him a sojourner in a foreign land. And for us, for us, as we look upon these, uh, as we look upon the sacrificial system of the old covenant, we read that the bodies of these animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We are blessed with a weekly reminder of just that thing, of all the turnings of this world and how far ahead of the country's uh, depravity our own state is. We must be reminded that here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. This we take hold of with our eyes on Christ in repentance and faith. And we see that Moses in this is able to endure and grow in grace. And so he finds growth in grace. We're able to see this growth on display as we recognize what takes place in verses 11 through 14. 
Or we see Moses' cowardice in 11 through 14. Because he takes uh, vengeance upon this Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. Here's Moses. He had spent 40 years under the tutelage of Egyptian tutors and teachers. We see that in Acts 21. We see that those 40 years represent a generation's worth of time so that the men in the narrative that he sees fighting, the men that he sees being beat by the Egyptian, all these people, all these men were the saved sons of Israel just from the prior section. Those sons that were uh, saved out of the Nile, those sons that were saved by the Jewish midwives, those sons that were saved by parents who disobeyed the edict of Pharaoh, these men are a part of who Moses is seeking to preserve. This 40 years represents the first of three 40s in Moses' life, for he spends Uh, 40 years in Egypt, then he spends 40 years in Midian, and then he spends 40 years in the wilderness. And so we see here that in Moses, in all this, that God was preparing him and growing him in grace. I don't have much comment as to Moses' morality in striking down the Egyptian for beating a Hebrew. But one thing to point out is the verb used, or the verbs used here as beating a Hebrew, as striking down the Egyptian. And then when the two Hebrews were fighting, and Moses says, why are you striking your companion? All these uh, verbs relay the same thing. So as Moses struck down the Egyptian, he strikes down an Egyptian who was striking a Hebrew. The assumption is that that Egyptian was beating that Hebrew to death. And the further assumption would be that those two Hebrews who were fighting one another were fighting each other to the death. And so we don't uh, I won't cast aspersions on Moses' actions as some commentators do, but we do take note that in his action, he does so as a, with an understanding of who he is to liberate the people of Israel, and we'll get to that in Acts chapter 7. But before that, we see that this Moses is different than the Moses of later parts of Exodus, chapter 6 and beyond, who stood before Pharaoh. He stood before Pharaoh opposing his hardened will. This is a different Moses than the Moses of Exodus 18, where Moses alone stands as judge before all the people. So we see both those things here, that he's unwilling to stand before Pharaoh. He's unwilling to stand as take his place as a judge before the people of Israel. That's not where we find him at the beginning. Here we find him as a coward, unwilling to stand before both Pharaoh and the Israelites. For if he was acting in full faith or acting in a way about delivering the Israelites out of the Egyptians there and beating this Hebrew, he would have stood before Pharaoh 
And he would proclaim what he does so later. And yet we, we don't, I don't hold that against him in the say that shame on Moses, but just to recognize the growth of grace in Moses' life. Surely he had entered into repentance and faith. Surely he had found Christ. And yet we find here in Moses certain weakness and cowardice. Now turn with me to Acts 21 and, or Acts 7 and we'll see how Moses thought of himself and come to an understanding here of what was taking place. As I said, Acts 7 records for us Stephen's uh, sermon right before he's stoned for such uh, a stance for Christ. Acts 21, Acts 7, beginning in verse 21. And after he had been sent Set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. Here in verse 25, we see what he understood about himself. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this mark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, and where he became the father of two sons. Here we see the Lord takes Moses out of Egypt for 40 years so that Moses would grow in grace. That he would grow from the one who would cower in front of Pharaoh and who would not stand at his place as a judge over the Israelites, that he would grow to be such that person under God's direction. It would be during these years the Israelites remained under harsh slavery and darkness. Another, uh, one commentator recognizes that a whole new generation grew from the expectancy of youth to the disappointment of old age while Moses was in Midian. And God seemed to do nothing. They were born into slavery. They grew up into slavery. They moved towards death and slavery. And the days of darkness still continued. See, what we have here is Moses escapes to Midian. We have God showing us what he was doing was unseen to the Israelites who remained in Egypt for 40 years, for a whole generation they remained in Egypt, living and dying under slavery. See, what God was doing was unseen to the Israelites. So the book of Exodus, as Amatir says, makes us face the prevailing and continuing of the darkness, which is often a part of our experience. While at the same time, lifting the corner of the dark curtain to tell us that there is also another story going on that the people who walk in darkness are on their way to the great light. The Lord is in the process of bringing his people out of darkness. For Moses, he was at work bringing him from cowardice to confidence. We see that 
as he grows in grace. We see that in verse 16 through 22 of our passage. It says that he comes across these seven daughters who are, who are drawing water for their flock, father's flock. For here's a, here's a man who had no sons, and so his daughters are fulfilling a son's duty. But the shepherds would come and they would drive them away. It was such a common practice that when Moses intervenes and they return back early, his, the father says, well, how did you get here so soon? I didn't expect you till later. Moses intervenes again, seeing injustice taking place. Now standing again before these shepherds and driving them away. Here he is a foreigner. He's in exile from Egypt. You would think that he'd just slink away and hide behind a rock until a certain time. Yet he was growing in grace, and so he stands again for injustice. Standing against these shepherds, delivering these daughters of Ruel, who later we uh, know as also Jethro. And they say, they testify to their father that an Egyptian delivered them from the hand of the shepherds. So we see also Moses had not yet doffed or got rid of his Egyptianness, his Egyptian likeness. The Lord was still working that in him and out of him. And then he takes a wife. We see this growth in grace because we see in verse 22 that she gives birth to a son and he named him Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Here we see Moses going from a coward to confidence for now he's sure what he, what he had taken hold of by faith, what he had acted on in repentance in Egypt, what he had known in his heart he was now sure of, and so he names his son in such a way that he is a sojourner in a foreign land because he's not going back to Egypt. He's not sojourning in Midian to go back to Egypt, though his story will take him there. He's even not a sojourner in Midian to go back to Egypt to sojourn there to make it to Canaan, though his story will take him to the edge of there. But Moses is saying, as is to this life, he's a sojourner in a foreign land. As we grow in grace, as we attend to these means of grace, whereby the Lord has promised to ordain such, to ordain such growth, surely our goal should be to move into that mindset Surely we are sojourners in a foreign land. Here we do not have a lasting city. There we do. What is our encouragement to grow in such a way? What is, what is the way in which we will do so? It, it will not come by Moses. Moses' uh, growth will not come by Moses himself. It comes by these words that describe our Lord's actions. In verse 25, we have a God who hears. We have a God who remembers. We have a God who sees. And we have a God who knows. What consolation is there if we are working out our salvation in fear and trembling 
and that's it. There is no consolation, but if we work out our fear and trembling in the power of God, for it is a God who hears and remembers and sees and knows, and we have eternal consolation in Christ our Lord. We lose sight often of that lasting city, and our gaze is lowered to the things that we can sense and touch and been provided graciously by our God. But we are being called in repentance and faith to grow in grace. For all along, God hears your groaning. God remembers his covenant through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in Christ. God sees us as his sons and daughters. And God surely takes notice of us and so guides us in this life and will continually guide us back, correcting our gazes from such a fleeting place as this to a heavenly reality that in this life, in this life, we may taste the life to come. Though it's presented to us as reproach and suffering, as Paul says, to him it was joy and glory, for it was in the one in whom he was held secure. Let us take faith in such things this morning, brethren. May our grace or may our faith, repentance and faith grow in grace. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the testimony of your faithfulness to us in Christ. We give you thanks for this testimony and your word here in the history of the Israelites during their time in Egypt. We thank you for the picture we have of your deliverance of them, for in that we see our deliverance from our darkness, the encouragement we have to repudiate ourselves is no longer being sons and daughters of the prince of the power of the air, no longer sons and daughters of the first Adam, but made new in repentance and faith in the second Adam, our eternal hope in this life and the life to come. Help us, Lord, in many ways as there are things to distract us and to pull us down. May we persevere to grow in grace by your means, to your glory, for our good. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.